Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Some of the news events I remember, I usually I usually think of them through a still image rather than a piece of television or film footage. And I think that's the power of photography, and it's the power of the still image, that it can capture something and tell a much bigger story through a single image. It's predicted that we will take more than 1.4 trillion photos this year. That means that during the 1980s, there were fewer photos taken every year than we now take every single day. We love to capture our every moment, and as smartphones find their way into every household, and the world's population continues to grow, that's not going to change anytime soon. Photographs tell powerful stories. Just look at the 1963 shot of the Vietnamese Buddhist monk set ablaze on a busy street in Saigon. Without words and without explanation, this powerfully evocative image frees our minds to wonder and muse over the circumstances that surrounded that one single moment. To speak to the strength of the still image, we brought in a man with a wealth of wisdom to share. Dr. Michael Pritchard is Director of Education and Public Affairs at the Royal Photographic Society, and he's my guest today. Chapter 1. More than meets the eye. Most of us take a lot of photos. Whether it's an endless stream of selfies, pictures of our kids, or snaps from our latest holiday, back when that used to be a thing, We're never quite happy to experience a moment just once. And yet if you want to debunk the myth that 10,000 hours of practice is enough to make a person an expert, you need only scroll through your friend's endless Facebook uploads to realise that can't be true. The valley between an expert and an amateur is vast. To capture true emotion in your photography, you must be able to view the world through, if you'll pardon the pun, a different lens. For the world's first photographers, there was no instant gratification. Yet there were just a few choice moments to capture the perfect image. So they had to make sure they got it right. So let's start our conversation with them. Exactly how old is photography? Photography was announced in 1839 and there had been some uh, moves to try and invent it, if you like, that sort of really started in the 1820s. But it wasn't until 1839 when Louis Daguerre announced his daguerreotype process, which created a unique image on a silvered metal plate and Talbot then in England announced his photogenic drawing process, which was really the basis of photography right up until digital. It created a negative and a positive, uh, which as we know, then then moved into film. And as I say, formed the basis of photography right the way through till digital took over in the early 2000s. And, and prior to being able to actually record, there were devices, they weren't particularly portable, but there were devices that could project an image. Is that right? Um, not quite project, but there were devices. Um, there was the camera obscura, which, which um, produced an image on a ground glass screen. And there was the camera lucida, which again created a, a sort of virtual image, which both of those devices were aids for artists. So they helped people draw a scene in front of them. Um, but even then you really needed artistic skill to operate them properly. And Talbot, I mean, this is the whole basis of Talbot um, inventing photography, if you like, that he wasn't very good at using the camera lucida. Um, his drawings are incredibly poor, and that really prompted him, prompted him to think whether there might be some chemical means of recording a scene in front of him, which then started all his research and experiments in with silver to try and produce a chemical process to capture a scene which became photography. 
So, okay, thank you. So photography then, as we would recognize it, has its origins with the daguerreotype, which if I, if I think about what you just said, that sounds astonishingly like putting a moving image onto a piece of, say, 35 millimeter film. That was its origins go all the way back to daguerre. Is that right? Uh, photography's origins go back to Daguerre, yeah. I mean, that was the first commercially successful photographic process. It was a little bit of a dead end in the sense it produced a unique image on a metal plate. So if you wanted more than one copy, you either had to re-photograph that original plate or take multiple exposures at the same time. Talbot's process really um, underpinned photography for, for the next 170 odd years, really. It produced a negative and a positive, which meant you could create as many positives as you wanted from that negative, um, which is great. So Talbot saw the uh, saw photography as being important for book illustration and where, where you needed multiple images. And he perhaps was less convinced it was going to be a, a more popular medium. But as we know, um, the, the market and consumers thought otherwise. It's interesting because today, I don't think we have a sense unless we grew up with um, black and white film or, or color film that we could, you know, produce ourselves at home. We just click and snap away. There's no cost. Um, it's simply we have so much data that we, we kind of take it for granted. But the evolution of that technology, for the want of a better word, eventually led to the creation of digital, which was then a different issue. It was about storage. And now we can take as many photographs as we like. We do. But I think um, although we do have this ability to take hundreds and thousands of images on a, a single memory card. Um, what, what you can't get away is that you need to have a sense of what you're photographing, why you're photographing, if you want to create an image that has any lasting meaning. Of course, you know, I take pictures on my phone all of the time, um, but they have meaning to me. They might be family pictures. They might be a place I'm visiting. So they have a meaning to me. But if we're going to create an image that has more resonance, you know, has a wider meaning to more people, then it needs a photographer's um, brain behind it, if you like, someone that can see an image, tell a story through photography. And that is a skill. And those early photographers, in a sense, because they were uh, photographing in a more considered, slower, more careful way, actually, the, the quality of the images that they were producing in some ways was higher. Um, and certainly based on a number of exposures was much higher than we create today. So all of these trillions of images that we create every week, you know, the quality hasn't really improved. I'm always stunned by the difference between uh, a photograph that has been taken by a professional and one that's been taken on a very good phone. I mean, phones these days, you can shoot films on them if you wanted to, and the quality is great. Um, but the difference between that and someone that has the right kit, the right experience, the right training to capture a single image perfectly is breathtaking. And I, I recently had a play on a, a, an arts festival in London back when theatres were open. Um, and a professional photographer came to the dress rehearsal and took some images. And I was so mesmerised by what he was able to capture, almost as if he was seeing a different thing than I was. Um, that innate ability to know where to stand, how to frame the shot, what filter to use, what focus to use. And basically, when all you're doing is pushing a button, there's years of experience that goes into the capture of that that one image. I think that's what we're talking about, isn't it? It's not just not just cat videos on YouTube. There's real skill behind pressing that single button. There is, and I think I think digital photography has given people the technical ability to take photographs, 
but you still need that training experience or sometimes just intuition to understand when you're seeing something that is worth photographing and capturing to tell that much bigger story. And the best photographers, people like Cartier-Bresson, for example, you know, he had that ability, it's almost innate, to, to see and capture a scene as second nature. You know, that, those skills can be taught, they can be learned up to a point, but the two truly great photographers, uh, that really is inside those photographers, they can see a picture and capture it. The technology, the camera, really is a means to an end. And I think, um, yeah, I think photographers often talk about the equipment, but ultimately, it's about the images, not the equipment they've used to achieve it. The phone, the digital single lens reflex, whether you're using film, digital, yeah, you know, those things don't really matter for the most part. Yeah, okay, technology has extended the range. We can photograph at night now in a way that we couldn't really do with film unless we were using flash guns and all of lighting, all of that. But so the technology has extended the ability to capture the photograph, but we still need that understanding to capture a an image onto that piece of film or digital sensor and that's really where the skill lies and I yeah it's a really interesting parallel between photography and writing in that it's the democracy of availability um for in photography everyone has a phone it, they generally have cameras on most people have a pen or a keyboard or whatever and they and they can write but that's different to the craft and the understanding of how to tell a story or to take a photograph they're not the same thing and quite often people think they are as I say, uh, yeah, Cartier-Bresson had that, it, he had the ability to see something and photograph it and come up with a, a great image, whether it was a group of people on the banks of a river, a, you know, street, a street scene, and just picking up on details. And he called it the decisive moment, or that's what it's being translated as. Still a little bit of a debate whether it really was the decisive moment, but yeah, he could see something in an instant, capture it and have a great image. Um, not everyone, you know, I can't do that. I, I, my photography is a much more um, pedestrian type of photography. You know, I'm happy with it, but it's never going to win any prizes or, or put me in the history books. Talking of prizes, I know you are a judge on several competitions. Could you just tell us a little bit about the role of the Royal Photographic Society? So the Royal Photographic Society is the world's oldest photography organisation. We were established in 1853 to promote the art and science of photography. And this was at a time when photography was still very new. There was still not very much understanding of the, the technology behind it, the chemistry, the optics. So it was a time when amateur photographers especially were instrumental in moving photography on to something that um, evolved into the, the digital world that we see today. So the RPS today is a registered charity. We're here to promote the public appreciation of photography and to help people develop their own skills and to enjoy photography as well through exhibitions, workshops and practical activities. Chapter two, the story beneath. A picture paints a thousand words, but as we know from the world of social media, photos often leave a lot of the story untold too. That's the beauty of the photograph. It's a very definitive moment captured in time, and yet it's open to the interpretation of anyone that views it. Just like any great piece of art, it allows each individual to draw their own conclusions. Sam Rowley's entry, Station Squabble, won the most recent Wildlife Photographer of the Year award. In a split-second moment, plucked out of time and space, we get to see two mice fighting over crumbs on the floor of a tube station, with one seemingly grabbing the other by its collar, ready to swing its fist. 
If that was captured on film, the moment would come and pass so quickly you might not even notice it. Yet the stillness of this image gives you the chance to explore every angle, to create your own story about the events that unfolded before and after the shot, to admire every single detail. Competitions like this showcase what photography can achieve when the camera is put in the hands of the right person, and just like a writing competition can give an artist the platform they deserve. But if you're thinking of entering any competition, remember to choose wisely. Yeah, I mean, there are hundreds, probably thousands of photography competitions happening every year throughout the world. Um, some of them are better than others. There are some that have very good reputations, help a photographer establish a career. Um, things like the, for example, Sony World Photography Organization uh, competition that happens annually, something like the Taylor Wessing National Portrait Gallery Photographic Portrait Prize. You know, those competitions really add value to the photographer. And yeah, to win one of those competitions or to be accepted even is really a, a sign of recognition. It's a sign of the quality of the work you're doing. There's others that do that in a, well, in fact, perhaps don't do that, where you maybe have to pay for entry, for example. Um, and paying for entry isn't always bad, but it's perhaps a sign that maybe be a bit careful about what you're entering you know, and think about why you're entering it. And I, you know, the advice I always give photographers is be selective about what competitions you enter and, and think about why you're entering. You know, choose the competitions that will help you as a photographer, whether it's travel photographer of the year, food photographer of the year. Again, both world leading competitions that are very particular and have, you know, are very particular in specialist areas of photography or some of the more general ones like in fact the society's own international photography exhibition is an open call um, but again it has a history it has a pedigree behind it we use good quality selectors so acceptance into that competition is a sign that you're working to a particular standard and anyone that sees a photographer in that competition should think actually they're looking at some of the, the best photographers working in their particular genre there's a real joy and this is fresh in my mind literally because a member of my family sent me um a digital photograph of an old print photograph that they have at home because obviously they can't get it to me um and it's it's of me as a kid and there is a real joy for me in finding a box of old photographs that you can that you can go through and, and, and get those memories so sometimes when you have them on your phone you can look at them whenever you want but when you come back to that image, it, it really does have a memory for you as to, you know, maybe you were a kid or maybe you were on holiday. There's something nostalgic about those old sepia tones, isn't there, in the old the old Kodak prints? There is. And I think this is, yeah, I think we've all got photographs in boxes or in drawers at home that, you know, we go to periodically and they, they yes, yeah, it's, it's both from a nostalgic perspective, it's bringing back a sense of place, it's a sense of people. Um, and I think photography, I think the still image actually does that far better than the moving image. I think the images that I remember or the perhaps some of the news events I remember, I usually I usually think of them through a still image rather than a piece of television or film footage. Yeah, not always, but um, yeah, I think some of, for example, 9-11. Yeah, of course, we've seen the the pictures on TV. We, we all saw the news footage of that. But I think some of the strongest images from that period were the still images that photographers shot. Yeah, the single image of someone falling from the Twin Towers that just capture the moment in time. And that's what really resonates in sticks and rather than that moving image. And I think that's the power of photography and it's the power of the still image that it can capture something and tell a much bigger story through a single image than the 
what 48 frames per second or whatever of a, a piece of moving image where you've got multiple images but you never really see them and spend enough time looking at each of those whereas a still image you take the time to look at it you absorb the details and actually you see the story that that image is telling in a much better way than the series of still images but show as a piece of motion picture there was actually talking of motion picture there was a documentary made about the exact image that you're describing of the, the you know the gentleman that is falling um or has leapt from um the towers that was a huge story locally at the time it, it went national there was a desire to find out who that was it just shows you the power of that and and on that i wanted to touch on uh war photography um if i if i can because there are you know that the beauty of the single image there is beauty there's haunting beauty there's horror there's destruction there's humanity all of that you know when you get when you get war photographers um embedded within military organizations some of the results can be extraordinarily powerful yeah and i think you know that's happened throughout history so as soon as photography was invented it took a few years but you know roger fenton for example is arguably described as the world's first war photographer he photographed in the crimea in 1855, 1856. Obviously, the technology at the time didn't allow him to capture the action, but some of his still images of some of the battlefields, some of the places that were involved with, within the Crimea, some of the people, you know, they're incredibly powerful images. By the time you get to the First World War, and then particularly the Second World War, people like Robert Kappa, for example, who captured the Normandy D-Day landings. Yeah, the, technically, yeah, he was under fire. The, the quality of his images are not great. But, and there's a whole mythology that's come up around what happened to the film when he sent it back to London that now has been, yeah, some of those stories have perhaps been disabused. But actually the power of those images is incredible because they, they convey a sense of the horror. They convey, convey a sense of the forces that were all going on at this and he managed to capture that in a single image so yeah they're not in focus the exposure is not great there's perhaps not a single point of detail but actually the whole um resonant resonance of that image and, and those images that he captured i think it was only six frames you know they're incredibly powerful and they they tell the story of that landing in a way that something that might have been more technically perfect would probably not have conveyed and we've seen it, you know, Don McCullin's work in Vietnam, for example, some of those great war photographers that were in Korea and Vietnam, you know, they captured not, they, yeah, they captured the horror of war, obviously, but actually they also captured some of the, you know, the, the humanity perhaps between individuals, you know, the relationships between soldiers and local people at time. And, you know, the, you know, the image that really sticks in my mind is one of the most powerful images for me is Nick Ung's picture of the Vietnam napalm girl. You see that girl walking along the road, um, you, you, get, you get the emotion from it, you get the power of what had happened there. And that image is you know, it's credited with turning the tide against the American involvement in Vietnam. Chapter three, a step too far. It's often hard to fight for the legitimacy of altering a classic work of literature, but it can be done. However, audiences won't always be happy when you rewrite history. The same can be said of photography. There's been plenty of scorn for the magazine industry over the years, due to the recent trends for airbrushing cover models to within an inch of their life. Yet we see stylized images every single day on platforms like Instagram. And despite the popularity of hashtag no filter, people seem to love taking in the altered and doctored lives of the people they follow. 
So in an age when the technology is so easily available that we can all edit like pros, how do we know when an image should be left to portray reality and when it's okay to tweak it a little? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, issue at the moment. I mean, there are certain types of photography and certainly within the RPS, there are um, areas like natural history, wildlife photography, documentary photography and travel photography, perhaps the three um, obvious genres where any form of manipulation of the image subsequently, other than basic cropping sorts of things you might have been able to do in a dark room, adjusting some of the, the tonality. Yeah, anything beyond that is completely unacceptable. You're supposed to be documenting those places, the animals, the flora, the fauna, the scenes that you're photographing in a way that's representative and, and correctly represents that place or subject. Now, you step back from that, there are forms of art photography where you know, the, the creativity that you can bring to bear on a single image through software is absolutely perfectly valid and you know, enhances the photography, creates a work of art from what might ordinarily be a, a straightforward image. So that's perfectly acceptable as well. And it's about knowing when it's right to do that, when it's ethical to do that. And you know, there's been a number of photojournalists that have been caught out for removing details from their pictures and have lost their jobs as a result of it because what they were doing as news photographers or documentary photographers wasn't ethical. And I think you know, as a reader or someone viewing an image, you have to ex you have to be confident that what you're seeing is an accurate representation of a particular scene or place at a point in time. You know, in fact, someone's got or there's a detail in there that you don't really want, well, actually, that's how it was at the time. Leave it in there. Um, otherwise, you're distorting that image. I mean, we should be very clear. This is, not, this is not simply a photography issue, right? I mean, faking has been around for a very, very long time. If you think about some of the early, you know, R Renaissance art, for example, it's not a uniquely photographic thing, but it's, it's the extent to which how easy it is now to manipulate that image, I think. You know, and as we all get used to these tools and these bits of software we can all do that yeah it is i mean it's been it's, it's been there you know ever since photography was invented almost um you know people like um oscar rylander henry peach robinson were combining more than one image into a single image to tell a bigger story and that you know that type of photography was perfectly reasonable it was accepted it was seen as um actually a great great way of making a photo photograph better than it might ordinarily have been. Um, the darkroom obviously allows you to do certain things within it that um, added or changed elements with away from the negative. And again, sometimes that was reasonable. Other times, you know, you, you wouldn't be doing it. Um, what we have now with digital technology is the ability to do it in a far greater way and often in ways that aren't detectable. And I think that's where the danger lies. That you know, we can be looking at an image and we're not always confident about what we're looking at and why it appears as it does. We've come so far from, if I, if I think about motion picture for a second, from a, a single canister of film that would last you anywhere, you know, nine, ten minutes. And, and Hitchcock was a master of the, you know, the nine and a half, ten minute single shot. He would rest on an inanimate object, replace the canister and then move the camera on again. And it would look like it was a 20 minute um, shot. As technology gets cheaper and more accessible are there developments that you know of coming down the line that excite you about what the future for photography might be i think for me the i think where we're going with smartphones has to be a yeah, really interesting development because we all carry those smartphones and we're we're taking pictures in places at times which just wouldn't have been possible before because 
have to have been carrying a heavy camera, lighting, all the rest of it. Um, the smart smartphone technology, I think, will continue to evolve. The latest round of smartphones we've had from Apple, Samsung, Huawei, um, you know, again, they're just pushed, taking the camera further and further. And that's great. You know, I don't, as a photographer, I don't really have an issue with that. To me, the camera, the smartphone is a tool to get the image. You're not going to use it for certain types of photography, wildlife photography, perhaps where you need a very long lens. Although I suspect at some point optical technology will evolve in such a way that you perhaps can use it for certain types of wildlife photography. So I think the, the ability to photograph in low light, I think the ability to actually always have that camera with you with a small device is going to you know, allow photographs to be made in ways and places that just we couldn't conceive of. Yeah, beyond that, it's hard to think really where photography can go, but I suspect in the 1850s or 1900 or the 1950s, people were saying the same, that actually photography has reached the pinnacle now. It's great as it is. It can't go anywhere further. And yet it has always evolved and changed over the last 180 years. And I suspect it will continue to do so. It's just we can't see quite where it's going to take us at the moment. Yeah, there was a, a a movie that came out a few years ago called Tangerine that was famously shot um, solely on on iPhones, and and that was that was the big marketing buzz around it. And actually, within sixty seconds, you forget all about that because it's just so it's just so expertly done. The light's beautiful, the acting is great, the story is what draws you in. So, to your point, it is simply a tool um, through which artists can um, can create art. Um, I do think it's interesting though how quickly. Uh, if you'd have asked me, you know, when I was a kid, did I want a, a phone used to be a thing that was tied to the end of the wall um, at the bottom of the stairs. Right. And then and then we got mobile phones and then they put cameras on them. And it was like, well, why do I want a camera on my mobile phone? I already have a camera. And now this device, the smartphone, is basically a camera and a messaging thing and a phone second. So, you know, I I don't know what um, I don't know what Louis Daguerre would have thought was going to happen in the future, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't that. So, so who knows where we're going to end up? No, I think that's really interesting. My niece and nephew, I mean, I don't think they've ever owned what I would call a proper camera. They've taken all of their photographs on a smartphone. They don't know anything else. Now, I think my niece actually is getting interested in photography in a slightly more serious way, perhaps because of my influence. So actually, she wants to use a camera because she thinks there are things that she can do with that camera that she can't do with her smartphone. And I think she's right. There are things that she will be able to do or pictures that she'll get that she couldn't get otherwise or do something with that image subsequently. So I don't think the camera is going to go away, but for, I don't know, 18, 90% of people, it will be their smartphone that's their camera. And actually it's interesting that the camera has become more important than the phone itself. So it's sort of almost turned 180 degrees. Yeah, it has, it's fascinating. Um, on that basis, Michael, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, nice to talk to you. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Michael Pritchard for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learned? A photographer understands what they're photographing and why before the camera is even set up. Have a comprehensive and holistic view of your work. Get to grips with the why first. The rest will fall into place. It doesn't have to be technically perfect to be perfect. There must be millions of great stories written but never released because the writers feared they weren't quite good enough. Remember, the audience will be the judge of that, so don't hold yourself back. Adapting great works of literature from the past is certainly possible, but tread carefully. For both writing and photography, the rules of editing are vague. 
but there does seem to be a fine line between what audiences will see as a clever twist versus grotesque manipulation. And finally, it might be hard to understand what you're getting when you pay for a photographer. Though it might seem like they're just pressing a button on a fancy camera, the reality is there's years of learning that's gone into pressing that button. That's what you're paying for. Expertise, time, creativity, depth, not just a photo. The same is true of the entire creative industry. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Coming up next week, we'll be in conversation with Professor Lewis Dartnell, author of The Knowledge, How to Rebuild Our World from Scratch. Let's pretend that we wake up tomorrow and the world as we know it has disappeared and the rest of humanity has disappeared and you're trying to work out how to go about rebuilding everything from scratch. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing.